All right, could we turn please to Romans chapter 12 this evening, Romans 12. And tonight we'll attempt an expanded paraphrase with some interlaced commentary and a prelude for both Romans 12 and 13, two chapters back to back. This is amounting to a distillation phase of Romans the epistle. The exposition phase is one thing. You go messily, verse by verse. This tightens it up a little bit, tightens up the commentary. And then there will be a reworking of this. So far, it's probably going to be about 54-page translation. But we'll tighten that up even further into a, as Mark calls it, a targum, Romans targum. Then who knows? But let's take a couple of moments to adjust interiorly. Father, thank you for another opportunity to receive the implanted word with teachability that only you can bring about in our interior being. We thank you for the great privilege And it's always a joy to be with people whom you have also awakened to your great grace and kindness in Christ Jesus, and that you've awakened us to a far greater horizon than we had imagined before. For that, we thank you. And as the Greeks said to the disciples in John 12, we would see Jesus. That's our prayer tonight, Father we would see Jesus in what's a, what we're about to study. We ask that you will bring your Holy Spirit in abundance to each mind and heart so that we can comprehend and imagine beyond our previous comprehensions and imaginings. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. First, a prelude to our symphony tonight. In 1 Timothy 2.1, we find the exhortation to pray for all people, for all human beings. The word anthropon is used there generically, and it refers in general to people. All men, in other words, means all human beings. The encouragement to intercede in prayer for everyone, panton anthropon, is consistent with and perhaps motivated by the love for all mankind in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, which in turn is the love of God being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In this way, prayer becomes a function of the dynamic state of love and of faith that works by love. To love someone is to will or wish for their ultimate good. We may love someone and want their ultimate good, but we are not able to bring about that ultimate good. That's why we intercede and approach one who can. God wills the good of all, and he's brought it about for them in the crucified Christ, resurrected from the dead. And that ultimate good will be realized in the future. 
We pray for all human beings and specifically for some whom we know personally. So that they may come to the knowledge of the truth. Which is the truth of their reconciliation to God. Even now that they may know it. Even now. Even as Paul prayed for his kinsmen after the flesh in Romans 9. In no small part then. God's love for everyone is comprised of his benevolent will that all human beings would be saved. Pantas anthropos, again, sothene, sothenai, all would be saved, First Timothy 2.4, and come to the knowledge of the truth. Those are two separate things. God has effected the rectification of all human beings, the reconciliation of all human beings, the reconciliation of all human beings in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24, Romans 5.18, 2 Corinthians 5.19, Romans 5.10. But all human beings have yet to come to the knowledge of this truth. This truth which Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 2.4, is the universal divine promeity that is embodied in Jesus. I am the truth, he said. The truth is embodied in Jesus, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.21. So the truth that we come to the knowledge of, and thank God if you have, bless God if you have already, is the truth of the universal divine promeity that is embodied in Jesus. So petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for everyone, including kings and all who are in authority. Think of that now. All who are in authority. People who are in authority, are, we've had a long line of presidents, and this is, again, this is a spontaneous commentary, but <clears throat> we've had a long line of presidents. All of them had been sinful men, without exception. But Paul writes of two kinds of sinful men. One has a, sin, a hidden kind of sin that is judged down the road or the person eventually reaps a harvest down the road for hidden things. People wonder what hit them. But then there's a kind that have sins that are overt and evident to everybody. And those are the kind of sins that everybody jumps on and judges and censors and it gets all over in judgment, which will again come back on them in a way. And so there are two kinds of people in this world. There are sinners who hide their sin, and there are sinners who are just blatantly out there with their sinfulness. And so be careful how you judge anybody. Here it says to pray for everyone, especially those in authority. Hmm, interesting. Also interesting, one of the most sleazy and degrading rulers that ever lived is Nero Caesar and he was 
the Caesar, a persecuting Caesar, in the time when Romans 13 was written. But we live in the era of the high horse, and people are up on one. <laughs> That's enough of that commentary. Let's continue. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for everyone, including kings and all who are in authority, so that, and here's where we get into the section we're going into right now, Romans 12, 1 to 15, 13 is the larger section. We're only going to get to 12 and 13, the chapters. This is, those prayers should be made so that, quote, we may spend our lives quietly and peaceably in all godliness and dignity, says 1 Timothy 2.2. And if you confer with where that's going, we're going with Romans 12.1 through 15.13. So that the community, community of Messianic believers can live peaceably in harmony, in love, and with dignity and godliness or right, the right kind of worship. This is what God our Savior considers to be good and acceptable. Again, we're still in 1 Timothy 2.3 where our prelude originates. It is here where God's will to save, in the same passage, God's will to save all is explicitly revealed. It is here in 1 Timothy, again, where God's will to save is explicitly revealed to be universal. Quote, he, God our Savior, wills or intends that all human beings, pantos anthropos, be saved and come to the knowledge or the insight of the truth. God's will to save is pervasive. It's everywhere. In other words, through Paul's epistles not least in Romans, perhaps most in Romans. Ephesians is, well, think about all these, they all have it. That his will to save everyone is a salient theme in Romans, a prominent theme in Romans, is illustrated in passages like Romans 1, 15 to 16, 3, 21 to 26, 5, 1 to 11, and again, 5, 12 to 21, especially in 5.18 and 19, then later in Romans 11.32 and 36, Romans 14.11 and 15.9 through 11. God's will to save all is instantiated. I had to use that word because it's the best precise word. Instantiated means an instance of it is made in Paul the Apostle himself. God's will to save all is instantiated, I-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-A-T-E-D, meaning an instance of his will to save all exists specifically in Paul himself, who makes himself an example of God's will to save all of Israel, Romans 11.2 and Romans 11.26. The reasoning being, if God saves Saul of Tarsus, who perceived his mission as the destruction of the people of Jesus, 
the very community of God. Then he'll save all of Israel and all of humankind. Again, love wills the good of the objects of its love. For God, he brings that good about for certain. For us, we will something that may not we can't bring about. So we intercede. We, pers- we want people who are already reconciled to God to receive the knowledge of the truth that they are reconciled to God and that that truth is embodied in a person whom we know affectionately and lovingly, fondly, and with hopefully the preeminent love of our lives, our Lord Jesus Christ. Love is the willing or the intending of the good to the objects of our love, that is, to those we love. It may be said, then, that the highest good that can be willed for a human person, the highest good, is salvation, which consists of a created participation in the very life, the very love, and the very joy of God himself. This will give you a hint about the bigger fish to fry than just merely a universal soteriology. That doctrine, if that's the height of your doctrinal expectation, you'll fall off from your interest in the word. Your pure desire to know will deviate into something different. We can't stop there. We can't stop there. So I'm urgent about that. And so God, our Savior, says 1 Timothy 2.4, intends that for all human beings. He wills it to such a degree. His will is so fervent about this, and he wills it to such a degree and with such intensity that he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up in behalf of us all, Romans 4.25 and 8.32. Or, as 1 Timothy 2.5 through 6 says, The man Christ Jesus, God himself, and the only mediator between God and all of humankind, gave his life as a ransom for all. These truths, this ends my prelude tonight to the symphony, these truths should be widely fanned out and treated reverently, carefully, and responsibly. Indeed, they should be treated with love. Indeed, they have been in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans 12.1 then begins a section of Romans. This is phase two. Romans 12.1 begins a section of Romans which is expressive of the phenomenon of the redeemed community living in the unity of faith, hope, and love during the clash of the ages. I'll say that again because it's an important setup. Romans 12.1 begins a section of Romans which is expressive of the phenomenon of the redeemed community living in the unity of faith, hope, and love during the clash of the ages. What Paul proposes here is only potential and is not often experienced in Christian communities. It has been from time to time. 
Richard Wormbrandt recently said, or before he died, said he's only seen truly jubilant Christians under persecution and in prison and in the Bible. I guess I could invite him here and show him that that happens sometimes here, but now again, this begins a section which is expressive of the phenomenon, which is a potential phenomenon for all Christian churches of the redeemed community living in the unity of faith, hope and love during the clash of the ages, which makes it all the more. A wonderful phenomenon. This section, which may be generally considered as chapters 12 through 16 of Romans. I think we can see Romans in four sections, one through four, with its dialectic of contradictories, five through eight, with its all Paul, nine through 11, with the identity of Israel, 12 through 16, with the phenomenon of the community in the unity of love. So Romans 12 to 16 may be considered under the general title, very general, of the community in the unity of love. This section fulfills the desire of God, our savior, God, the universal savior, that we who believe may spend our lives quietly and peaceably in all godliness, which means right worship and dignity. True human dignity is a reflection of Jesus life in us. First Timothy two, three, Again, this is what God, our Savior, the Savior of all humanity, considers to be good and acceptable. Please notice that. Good and acceptable. Therefore, 1 Timothy 2, 2 and 3 may be seen in conjunction with holy and acceptable in Romans 12, 1. The life that is holy and well-pleasing to God is a graced, participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and in the hope and love that is produced in the community by the Holy Spirit. Now we're ready for Romans 12.1. So by the mercies of God, these are the ever-renewable, never-ending compassions of God which he shows us experientially every morning, according to Lamentations. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 reduplicates this phrase of mercies or ever-renewable compassions, and therefore these are what brings us into the newness of life and sustains us there, and in newness of service to God and others by the Holy Spirit. So by the mercies of God, the ever-renewable compassions of God that bring you into newness of life and newness of service to God and others by the Spirit, arrow back, Romans 6, 4 and 7, 6. I, Paul, the apostle, urge you, siblings, brothers and sisters, we can say, to present, now he uses the word peristemi again, which I don't want to do too much exegesis here, but just to remind you of certain key words, peristemi, which means to present. We've already seen it in a very powerful section of scripture called Romans six thirteen to 19. Present your bodies, plural, to God as a living sacrifice, 
singular. Bodies, plural. Sacrifice, singular. Plural bodies, one sacrifice. Why? Because this one sacrifice is the sacrifice of the corporate Christ in a graced imitation of the offering of Christ to God on the cross by which God overcame evil by the essential good. That's a commentary that's extremely important. It's a, it's, I put it within the verse as an expansion. So once again, Romans 12.1, very pivotal verse. So by the mercies of God, the ever-renewable compassions of God that bring you into newness of life and newness of service to God and others by the Spirit, I urge you, siblings, to present your bodies to God as a, as a living sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of the corporate Christ in a graced imitation of the offering of Christ, the self-offering of Christ to God on the cross, by which God overcame evil by the essential good. The point being made here is the community and unity of love is used by God within history to redeem history by the transformation of evil into good. We'll see how this, I hope, how this plays out. Set apart and acceptable to God, holy and acceptable echoes what we see in 1 Timothy 2, 2, God's will to have a, it's good and acceptable that we live lives peaceably and in dignity and godliness or proper worship. This is your primary reasonable act of priestly worship. You say priestly is not in there. No, but it is intended to be in there. It should, Paul would assume that would they know what kind of service this is. To offer a sacrifice is a priest's function. We are a kingdom of priests to God being purified by the blood of Christ, the lamb without spot. So whenever a mention is made of us making a sacrifice, it's a priestly service. So see how this works. This is your primary reasonable act of priestly worship. Now. I have to do brief commentary in here before I continue. The act of worship constituted by the offering of our bodies to God, the presentation of them in availability to God as a living sacrifice is entirely reasonable, as he says here, because it is imitative of the offering of the body of Jesus Christ who offered himself as both priest and lamb without spot to God through the eternal spirit with the divine intent to transform evil into the supreme good by that law of the cross that we're going to talk about, which goes infinitely farther than what we've learned before. The supreme good into which evil is transformed is none other than the entire Christ Christ in his totality, head and body. Christ is not only the head over people called the church, he's called the head over all things. He is called the head over principalities and powers. So what was once evil, creatures once evil, transformed into the supreme good means they're brought into the whole Christ, the entire Christ, head and body. 
As Paul said, once he was motivated by murder and persecution, then he says, now for me to live is Christ. Supreme good is Christ living in me. So, this is an entirely reasonable offering of our bodies because it's imitative of and a graced imitation of Jesus Christ who offered his body to God in the divine intent to transform evil into the supreme good. By this presentation of the bodies, our bodies, of the corporate Christ as a single sacrifice, the members of the community of Christ, also known as the proleptic messianic community, become participants in God's solution to the problem of evil in this present age. And therefore, uses believers as a pivot to redeem history itself. I'm expanding some of these things extemporaneously, so it's not all in print. This, this sacrifice, which we're speaking of in Romans 12.1, leads to a policy of love in which the saint, as he or she is called, becomes perfect as God the Father is perfect in love. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect means that to be perfect in love like the Father because he shows his goodness to the evil and the good, to the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew five thirty three forty three to 48 becomes pivotal and will be significant in our upcoming segment of teaching probably. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, this aeon. Not world, but aeon, age. So in brackets I put, do not be conformed to this evil age. Galatians 1, 4 is my reason for that. It's a present evil age. Instead, be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking. Not just changing your thinking, changing your whole way of thinking, your whole perspective, your whole standpoint, your whole horizon of thinking. Resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained will of God. How can the will of God be completely attained? Because Jesus Christ and him crucified is where the will of God was completely attained. So do not be conformed again to this evil age, 12.2. Instead, be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained in Jesus Christ and him crucified will of God, which then makes you an instantiation of God's intention to bring all things under the gracious headship of of Christ Ephesians 1 9 to 11 I'm giving you, I, you you don't know how much massive doctrine is in these condensed statements tonight if I were to fan them out it would take the rest of my life just might do that and I'm living till I'm 120 I don't know about you so that I've got a long but anyways and that instantiation 
of God's intention to bring all things under the gracious headship of Christ confer with Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, the key verse of our upcoming studies, through instauration. Instauration when it comes to you personally and me personally, we have our own personal instauration. It's the practical interior effect of our co-crucifixion with Christ. That's our own, our very own personal instauration, which is, again, the practical interior effect of our co-crucifixion with Christ. That practical interior effect will be shown in a transfigured effect when we get to the light of glory. It's quite awesome. So as will be seen in Romans 12, 19 to 21, I'm trying to show you how this all adheres and coheres. As will be seen in Romans 12, 19 to 21 at the end of this chapter, conformity to this age, this evil age, is exactly what occurs when evil is given in exchange for evil. Or when evil done leads to evil repaid with evil. Violence for violence, insult for insult, slander for slander. Oh, yeah, you. I know you are, but what am I? But only worse. Verse 3. For through the grace, that's the apostolic grace, if you put an arrow back to Romans 1.5, I've received grace and apostleship, Paul said. For through the apostolic grace that was given to me, and that's authority to say these things, I say to everyone who is among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think. We should thank God for the news today because this examples of doing exactly not what Paul said are being shown all over the airwaves today. In political punks that have 15 minutes of fame, 10 of which are up. See, that's... Forget I said that. that. Forget it. That's Forget it. Just don't think I would, would say such a thing. But through the apostolic grace that was given to me, I say to every one of his, uh, who is among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to think. Now, right here, this is a stinger. The communicator of the word par excellence Paul's the greatest communicator of the word. You say, what about Jesus? He is the word. He is the word that God spoke. He didn't come to speak. He came to be spoken by God. He's God's word spoken. When he did speak, he only spoke as the father gave him utterance. That's coming up in our theology. It's going to be exciting. So right here, the communicator of the word par excellence, Paul reproves again, reproves all selfish pride, or what we call hyperiphania, as the root of group biases, biases, especially Gentile Christians against Jewish Christians. But you can match that up with any amount of biases today. That's in Romans 11, Christian Gentiles against Jewish Christians. Romans 11, Jewish Christians against Gentile Christians. Romans 118 to 331. Instead, Paul says, it is necessary to think reasonably as each one has been assigned 
faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness, not your faith, as each one has been assigned faithfulness, that's Christ's, as the measure and standard of judgment. So I look at a person, you want me to judge them, well, censure them, or judge them for their behavior. I have to judge them on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ, which means they're justified on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. Even punks, self-important political punks. Amazing. You say, do you love them? Yes. You say, do you like them? No. I'm not commanded to like everybody. There's days I don't like myself. Four. For just as in one body, we have many parts. And not all the parts have the same function. That's the word praxis. Very important function. Functional word. Means mode of acting. Not all the parts have the same function or mode of acting. So we the many, verse 5, that's many bodies like Romans 12.1, are one body, capital B, body, in Christ. En Cristo. That little phrase, en Cristo is a blessed phrase. It's used 13 times in Romans alone and over 80 times in Paul's epistles. 13, if you measure, if you measure 13 of his epistles or number 13. Even if Paul didn't write some of the ones like the pastorals or some sections of the pastorals, as some people say, they're still Pauline epistles. They say in a condensed form what Paul said. So in Christo. And individually, members of one another. Not only members of Christ, you are members one of another. You Jewish Christians are members of those of the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians were the Jewish Christians. Same with racial, ethnic, gender, economic status, all the rest. We're members one of another. That's a phenomenal thing. Even though we have different gifts. According to the grace given to us all, that's what the sense is here, verse 6, we each have different gifts. If one of those gifts is prophecy, let it be exercised in agreement with the faithfulness of Christ. Or we could say, and I think the sense here pertains, let it be exercised to proclaim or tell forth the faithfulness of Christ is the point, which we've tried to do through Romans. Verse 7, if your gift is service, that's a very general gift, then concentrate on service. If it's teaching, then concentrate on teaching. I always think of some reason, I always think of an ice cube tray. And you can pour a whole lot of water into one of those little containers, but it's going to overflow into all 20 of them or whatever there is in an ice cube tray. It's for the benefit of, the, of all. So nobody really gets more because anything that's given to one is for the whole of the body. And it isn't to be held on to or kept in a, wrapped in a napkin, as Jesus said. 
If your gift is service, then concentrate on service. Do it with your whole heart is the idea. If it's teaching, then concentrate on teaching. If it is to encourage, then concentrate on encouraging. If your gift is to share, then share without holding back. If it is to be a caregiver, then do it earnestly. If it's mercy, then do acts of mercy cheerfully, unreservedly. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. The only way that can happen, incidentally, is if our love is the unqualified, unrestricted, unconditional love of God himself. If we love with God's love, God's love has no hypocrisy to it. But let love be without hypocrisy. The point is that love is hypocritical. If it is shown for the members of our clique or group, but not for the other, whoever the other is, including, eyes forward to Romans 13, civic leaders. Recoil from evil. That is from... That means now, recoil from evil doesn't just mean don't watch bad movies. That's a good advice anyways. You have no idea what the images that are placed before your eyes do to the interiority of your soul. You have no idea. Children have no idea. There's no, the images that come through violent and sexual video games, film and I guess even TV shows now where they call it bachelor or bachelorette when all it is is cameras in a whorehouse. Cameras allowed in a whorehouse. I just saw two minutes of it one night and almost vomited. So, see, I keep doing that. This, that's not, I, I don't intend to do all this that I'm doing tonight. But, but the point is that there is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life is everything that the world is made out of. And it is, it is antagonistic to the love of the Father. So there, it's not a legalistic thing. It's just a thing of what is best for, how can I best love my God and my Savior and reflect that fidelity and faithfulness to my spouse, my wife or husband, my children, my friend, my fiancé or fiance or fiancé. To my friends, or pastor to church, or assembly to pastor, or really, we submit one to another, as we're going to learn in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21. The submission there is not of a congregation to a pastor, but of every member, including the pastor, to every other member. Because that's what happens in the three members of the triune God. That's another theological point. Recoil from evil. And what it means here is, as we're going to see, recoil from giving back evil to the evil that was done to you. That's how you get caught in evil. That's how you get caught in it. Retaliation. Vindictiveness. Revenge motivation. Self-vindication. I'll hurt them, they hurt me. They hurt mine, I hurt theirs. That's evil. 
recoil, recoil from evil. That is, from giving back evil for evil. In this context, it includes engaging in violent revolution in Romans 13. It includes engaging in violent revolution against a divinely instituted government, even if the government's kind of screwed up. Or revenge. Revolution or revenge are out. Stick to what is good. I decided to translate it that way. Stick to it. Cleave to it. Stick to what is good. That means be agents of benevolence and beneficence. Speak well of your persecutors. Did you really say that? Yeah. That's what Paul says. Show familial affection, family affection to one another. After all, you are family. Who are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? But those who hear the word of God and keep it. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a new one. Instead of competing to receive honor, compete in giving it. Be diligent, not lazy. Be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. Be patient in tribulation. Love is patient. Persist in prayer. That includes, according to 1 Timothy 2.1 that we did in our prelude, prayer for those in authority, which anticipates Romans 13.1-7. 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. This is particularly close to Paul's heart because he had just finished collecting a sizable, substantial financial collection for the persecuted saints in Judea from the Gentile churches to show a real show of unity. Pursue opportunities to show affectionate receptivity to strangers. Hey, there's a new guy here tonight. There's a new person here tonight. Should we be suspicious? Are they here to spy out our liberty? No. Go out of your way to show affectionate receptivity to strangers. Speak well of those who persecute you. Gee, now he's saying exactly what Jesus said. That's right. Speak well, he says. He actually says it in the Greek. It's like, yeah, that's right. Speak well of them and don't curse them. You see, my brief commentary says this. This is in accordance with the law of the cross, whereby God does not overcome evil by raw power, but by transforming it into the supreme good. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Instead of being jealous of them when they're honored. Weep with those who weep instead of saying, well, they deserve that. (laughs) Be sensitive to the needs of others. Don't think highly of yourselves. Instead, associate with the humble. I put this in brackets. By doing so, you are associating with Jesus himself. When did we visit you in prison? When did we house or feed you? When did we... Show kindness to you when you were disfranchised by others. When you did it to the least of these. Associating with the humble, you might be finding yourself associating with Jesus himself. Don't repay evil with evil. Now it gets explicit. Verse 17. 
because this is hostile to the law of the cross, my comment. Strive to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. You know why? Everybody knows what it means to be honorable. They can tell if a person is honorable. Everybody, believer or unbeliever, knows generally what it means to be honest and honorable. In other words, even a person with a low IQ can tell if somebody's there to put in a furnace that they don't need. (laughs) Now, don't repay evil with evil. Strive to do what's honorable in everybody's eyes because everybody recognizes what honor means. As much as is possible, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, Live in peace with all people. Never seek revenge, loved ones, but leave a place for the wrath, he says. And I have that in quotes because the wrath is what is brought up by the opponent, that God is somehow wrathful. But what God does in his wrath is transform evil into good. So leave it to God. We can revenge ourselves, and we can, they say it's a better a dish served cold. We can wait for the right opportunity down the road. They don't expect it, and then we can get them back. It's a meal best served cold. Revenge. Well, that's all BS. Revenge. is a meal best not served at all. Leave a place for the wrath, for it is written, I will repay, the Lord says. Payback is only my prerogative, says the Lord. Not Craig's cousin, Bobby Brown. My prerogative, remember that song? I don't know It's the Lord's prerogative to pay back. I will pay back. Now, the reason we let God pay back is when he pays back, he doesn't send someone into hell that hurts you. He transforms them. He leads them to repentance and a change of mind. He leads them to change their counterposition. He converts them. He transforms them into the supreme good. They may end up being in the body of Christ, just like you, down the road. I've seen that happen in my life. I've seen that happen. So when the Lord pays back, this is a comment, it is not evil with evil or raw force against raw force, but by a transformation of the evildoer and a transfer of the evildoer into the fellowship of divine and human persons, which is the whole Christ, head and body. And if you don't believe that, This is exactly what God did to Paul. The quintessential persecutor and evildoer. He met him. Who was he hurting? Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Who is Paul hurting? Jesus. What did Jesus do? He brought him into the whole body of Christ, the head and body of Christ, so that his life to living was now Christ. He transformed the evil Saul into the one who experienced the supreme good of a fellowship of divine and human persons in the body of Christ. 
and we want to be imitators of Jesus, what would Jesus do? <laughs> In closing then, Romans 12, 20, I, don't, I guess we're not going to get to 13. On the contrary, contrary to doing all that revenge stuff, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing this, you will heap coals upon his head. That metaphor means you will lead him to repentance and to the abandonment of his counter position. Proverbs 25, 22, arrow back, Romans 2, 4. In other words, your kindness will lead him to repentance just like God's kindness leads to repentance. Don't, here's the big mandate. Verse 21, don't be overcome by the evil. How are we overcome by the evil? By returning evil for evil done to us. That catches us up into the web of evil. So the evildoers hurt us a lot more by getting us to return the evil than by the evil they did to us. Don't become overcome by the evil, but overcome evil with a policy of surprising benevolence. Well, he stole my cloak. I think I'll give him my coat, too. He stole those grocery bags delivered by Whole Foods right off my porch. And I know where he lives. What are you going to do? Go over and give him 50 bucks so he can get more. He must be hurting. What do you think that's going to do to him? Well, it might, you might risk this idea. What a sucker they are. I'm going to steal every time something's delivered to them. Or maybe you'll heap some hot coals on their head and lead them to a conversion. So I'll close with this. We're going to have to leave 13 for now. Romans 12, 21 is a crucial mandate for Christians. It's crucial. It's central. It's significant. It requires the Christian's conformity to the law of the cross as it is embodied in Jesus. None other, no other way. It requires the Christian's conformity to the law of the cross as embodied in Jesus. This is the practical effect of the cross in the individual believer and in the community of believers brought about by a divinely initiated and divinely completed process called instauration. Ultimately, as seen in Romans 13, 14, where we're going, although not tonight, it is the putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ, which precludes, prevents, forbids, destroys the possibility, among other things, for the lust of revenge or the intent of retaliation. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ automatically puts off and makes no provision for the lust for retaliation, which is a lust dominated by the flesh. 
We've relegated that only to sensual sins or sexual sins, that lust of the flesh. Paul's dealing specifically with the lust, the ambition, the desire, the intense desire to repay evil with evil. Yes, does he include sexual sin, debauchery, promiscuity? Yes, he does. And he does it very strongly in Romans 13 because these sins, these sins are a radical distortion of the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, which is a liberty from the flesh, which in doing those things, we distort that into a pseudo-liberty that puts us in slavery to the flesh. Christians somehow, because of what they've been exposed to on TV and Movies and video games and talk shows and people yapping and trends in history. They've assumed that God doesn't despise those kinds of activities, and he does. Don't forget it. Ultimately, the putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ, which precludes, destroys the possibility of many, among other things, the lust for revenge or the intent for retaliation. Speaking of retaliation, Paul follows in the instructions and in the footsteps of Jesus who denounced violent political revolution against Rome. Such a policy runs counter to the law and the impact of the cross counter to God's redemptive plan to transform the evils of this age into the supreme good. Jesus and Paul both enjoined and instructed with regard to a policy of non-retaliation. Now listen carefully, because this is a fine-tuning of this doctrine. This policy is not pusillanimous and empty pacifism. Please note that. This isn't the pusillanimity of an empty pacifism and protest, but a robust fulfillment of the law of the cross by loving, not with one's own love, but with the love of God, which is unqualified, which means unrestricted and poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the most manly, if you want to be talk about masculinity, the most manly course of action is not to return evil for evil. But we've been taught the opposite. The best movies we the best movies I used to like are revenge movies. And you get all the satisfaction from when he gets the guys that did it. So, that's not manliness. That's someone who falls prey to a very unmanly anger and reaction. And by anger, no one ever fulfilled the righteousness of God, ever will, ever has, or ever will in the future. James 1.20. So, let me close this. Imagine I had ambitions of going through 13. So again, 
This policy is not the pusillanimity of an empty pacifism and protest, but a robust fulfillment of the law of the cross by loving, not with one's own love, but with the love of God, which is unqualified and unrestricted and poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was eternally breathed by the Father and the Son, who was sent on a mission in conjunction with the Son's divine mission, and who was given to us by the Father and the Son as their own self-giving love. The Holy Spirit is the Father and the Son's own self-giving love. It's poured out in your heart. This policy presents more than a protest to the evil age. It effectively acts in concert with God to overcome evil by divine good. Hence the segue to Romans 13, 1. Every soul must be subjected to the governing civil authorities. What? For no authority exists except by God, and the powers that be have been established in office by God. All right, you get the idea. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to gaze into your perfect law of freedom, your perfect Torah of freedom, which is your word, which is the gospel about your son. Father, may we pay attention to you because you really boil everything down to one thing that you said verbally and audibly two notable times in the scriptures. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my son, listen to him. And when the son prayed, in John 12, Father, glorify me in you. The father said, I have glorified it, I've glorified your name, and I'll do it again. May we see in the gospel of God about his son, about your son, Father. May we see in the gospel, your gospel about your son. May we see your son.